Well, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. There we go. Some of us know that response. Well, I got to be honest with you. I, I was struggling this morning during singing time. Not because uh, I didn't think the band was playing well and not because it was terrible to hear all of you singing, but because I realized in the, this in the entire process of planting this church, I haven't believed that Christ is enough. And I arrived this morning and everything's getting set up and it's our first time in this building, in this gathering. And so, you know, everyone's kind of running around a little bit with their heads cut off because it's like, well, where's stuff going to go? Or where are we going to put the seats? Or what about our kids? Or what about all of these different things? And I realize as I'm, as I'm, as I'm getting overwhelmed by this, and at one point I just had to go outside. <laughs> as we're singing, it, it hit me. That Christ is enough for me. That nothing else, if there's nothing else, if the chairs are all over the place, if the sound's not working, if uh, midweek you're frustrated about, I'm not feeling connected, who's enough? Christ. Anyways, I need to confess that to you today before we journey into what truth looks like before we try to decipher what is right and what is wrong. Because I've been in the wrong and that I have trusted in Matt, in James, in our leaders, and I have not at times trusted in him. So he is enough for us. Oh, by way of introduction, there's, there's one person here that's, we're all kind of new, uh, but there's one person here that drove all the way from Toronto to be with us today, and that's Trevor Seath. And Trevor is here. Trevor, you can put up your hand there. Uh, Trevor, if we can all welcome Trevor. Hey, Trevor. <laughs> hey. So Trevor is here. He is uh, part of C2C Network, which is, one of, which is one of our network associations and affiliations. Uh, so for the future of the churches that we want to plant out of Church of the City, we'll be uh, going through Trevor and C2C Network, as well as our fellowship denomination. So actually, Steve Jones, I see you there behind the lights. So Steve, if you'd raise your hand around. So Steve is our... Uh, yes. You maybe wanted to come and not have that happen, but... Uh, <laughs> Saka, it happened. Um, so Steve is here, and uh, he is our president for our fellowship. So it's wonderful to have both of you guys here from your, both of your networks as we continue to plant churches and to be the church here as Church of the City. It's a wonderful thing. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you haven't gotten them out already, grab them. We are in 1 Timothy uh, today, and we're going to be in 1 Timothy for the next eight weeks, actually. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the back. So if you'd like a physical hard copy, I think you can one have one now, but then I'm imagining if you don't have one at all, you can actually take one of these with you when you go home. But we're starting in 1 Timothy, and the reason that we're starting in Timothy is because 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, uh, and then a later book called Titus are three personal letters that the Apostle Paul writes to young men who would take up his charge or take on the continuation of his ministry. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy because Timothy is the leader in a church at Ephesus, in a city. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to counsel him on matters of church leadership, on proper worship, talking about qualifications of overseers. He's giving him advice on confronting false teaching, and then also how to treat various individuals within a congregation. 
And so as we were praying and as we were thinking about what did we want to do as our church comes together for the very first time, we realized that Timothy would be a great place to start as we are desiring to be a gospel-centered church here in this city and then planting other churches prayerfully throughout the world. And so Timothy is the ground zero for what we're to do, for what we're to care about, for what we're to lean into as we are part of the church. Now, as Kyle was reading that, and he did it so wonderfully this morning, there's a, there's a theme that I think hopefully you caught on to. And so the theme in chapter 1 is false teaching, or bad doctrine versus sound doctrine. Now, this isn't something that we really talk about very often. Like, when was the last time, you know, you're talking with someone like, well, that was just wrong. That was false. We live in Canada! Where you can believe what you want to, as long as it's good for you, and I'll believe what I want to, but don't you dare tell me that what I believe is not right. Do you understand this as you're doing life? That this is the culture that we live in? So the question I want to start with today is, how do you decipher if something is right or if something is wrong? Maybe you can actually just click for me instead of me doing it up here, because this is... How do you decipher if something is right, or how do you know if something is wrong? So a a really minuscule, small example, at our potluck and prayer this past week at at my house, there was an 11-year-old girl there, and she proceeded to tell us that her cat is 100 pounds. Your cat is what? (laughs) That's incredible. Do you own a panther? Is Is this a cougar? Now, I had enough gusto to say, that can't be right. That, that cannot be right. And she's like, no, seriously, he's 100 pounds. I said, well, how heavy are you? I'm 90, but that's like human pounds. That's not cat pounds. <laughs> oh, that, that really clarifies things. Well, you do know that cat pounds and human pounds are the same thing, right? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, he's probably maybe 20 then. Okay, as long as we've got that figured out. But how do you decipher if something is right or wrong? Now, this might sound a little bit silly, and maybe uh, for some of us it's like, well, yeah, obviously. But here's what I I think we need to say first and foremost, and where we need to kind of land together if we're going to journey into this. Number one is that you must believe there is right and there is wrong. Right? In order to decipher, is something right or is something wrong? You have to generally believe that there is right and there is wrong. Now, we live in a culture that says there's no such thing as absolute truth. So, we're going to look at this a little bit philosophically, and I hope this will be helpful to us. If you claim and say the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth, you've just defeated the very statement that you have said. Do you understand that? If I say this is a truth claim, there's no such thing as absolute truth, then you can't really say what you just said because that's an absolute truth claim. So philosophically speaking, we have to go and say, well, okay, then there must be a right and there must be a wrong. There must be a truth and there must be things that are not true. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, before he came to know the Lord, said this, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. Now, maybe some of your friends or the people that you live on the same street with, they they say the same thing. There can't be any God because things out there are so bad. But how had I got this idea of something being just or unjust? 
How had I got the idea that something was right and that something was wrong? A man does not call a crooked a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see what Lewis is doing? He's leaning into morality and saying, if I'm to call something wrong, then I have to have a definition of something that is right. But where do I get that right definition? Andre and I were sitting with friends last night, not, not believing people, and we were over at their house, and we started to talk about things going on in the school system. And they were like, well, I just want my kid to be happy. I said, okay, well, that's all well and good, I guess. Well, what if this was the thing that they were claiming that they wanted? Well, no, they could never do that. Why? And what you run into is, you're right, I, I don't know actually how I would be able to measure that one up. It's kind of interesting. So, we have to be able to say that there is right and there is wrong. Number two, what we have to do is we then have to identify the truth. So you have to identify what that right is and what that wrong is, what that true thing is versus what that false thing is. Now, how do you identify if something is true or not? So example, Facebook, right? You're on Facebook, you're going through, and there's this nice picture and this beautiful little quote over top of it. How do you decipher if what that quote says is true or not? Is your filter, well, it sounds good. So it must be true. Maybe your filter is, well, because this person said it, it must be true. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Blink, talks about the conscious part of your brain and the unconscious part of your brain, or the conscious thought versus the unconscious thought. And in this quote, he illustrates for us this, what this unconscious thought does. The giant computer that is our unconscious silently crunches all data it can from the experiences we've had, the people we've met, the lessons we've learned, the books we've read, the movies we've seen, and so on, and it forms an opinion. So let's focus on this. You probably made a judgment call when I stood up here based upon what I was wearing. Now, you're maybe conscious of that, but there was an unconscious element to you thinking, hmm, to you walking in today, what were the immediate things that you thought of? What Gladwell shows us in this book, Blink, is that those things and those reactions are created by all of your different experiences, everything you've read, everything that you watch. And what he talks about in his book is that you can actually control the way you react to things based on the things that you allow into your life. But what's most interesting about this, and I think this backs up the Christian perspective of whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is noble, think on such things, is that you can also unknowingly deceive yourself into believing something that is not true based on the things that you're taking in. So this morning, how are you responding when we start getting to some of the real truths? How will you be responding? Will you go, whoa, that's not something you hear in our culture very often. Then your unconscious has been formed by the culture in which you live. So we need to be aware of what's happening. So in the business of trying to decipher what is right and what is wrong, how do we even control some of our opinions if it's being essentially changed by all of the things around us? Well, we believe as Christians that the Bible is our authority. Christians, in our perspective, in our worldview, say we get our right and wrong from the Bible. We don't try to just simply just figure it out. I mean, we could never completely figure it out. Is morality evolutionary? Do things change over time? But then how does that work with, you know, 100 years from now versus, you know, 300 years from now when that was okay and then that wasn't? Christians go, no, our texts, our scriptures transcend our culture and it speaks as an authority to the world in which we live. 
Now, a couple of points about the Bible, because some of you might be sitting there going, listen, I tried reading the Bible once, and there's that in there. Okay, well, number one, the Bible is an ancient text. All right, this doesn't mean that the Bible can't transcend ancient cultures, but we must understand that the Bible is an ancient text written in a certain time period and written in a certain culture. So in order for us to understand the teachings of the scriptures, we have to enter into some of those cultures in which it was originally written. And we're going to do that with 1 Timothy. Number two, any act of communication, which is what the scripture were, only has meaning within a particular language and historical, cultural context. So as we study the history, as we study the culture, we can become aware of the truths that were being spoken to that culture and only then apply it to our own. Peter Enns, a scholar, says this about the Bible. The Bible belonged to the ancient world in which it was produced. It was not an abstract, otherworldly book dropped down out of heaven. It was connected to and therefore spoke to people in that ancient culture. The uncultured qualities of the Bible, therefore, are not extra elements we can discard to get the real point, the timeless truths. Rather, precisely because Christianity is a historical religion, God's word reflects the various historical moments in which it was written. As we learn more about this history, we we should gladly address the implications of that history for how we view the Bible and what we should expect to hear from it. Now, this is really helpful for any of you that have ever been in a situation before where somebody claims something that the Bible says and you're like, they must have taken that one out of context. Like, come on. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? Why do, they, why do you say that? Because they've taken it out of the context in which it was written. So here at Church of the City, if you want to know what we're going to be about, we're going to be about the Bible. And we're going to be about studying the Bible in its culture and in its historical place so that we can understand the implications for our life in the here and in the now. We're not going to go fishy and searching for other things that we can study outside of the Bible and just make the Bible a a second point to what we're saying. The Bible is the point of what we're saying. All right? We're not going to do that. And so when you come in, you can expect that, well, what are they going to teach? I remember, you know, when we first were in this last church we were part of, we're not saying the names anymore. Um, there was somebody that came in once, and, and we were teaching through the book of Mark for like a year and a half. And the person came in, and their comment was, you mean you just open the Bible, you read what it says, and then you explain it? Yeah. <laughs> Very sneaky. <laughs> yeah, that's all we do. Oh, wow. I've never been to a church that did that before. What? We are about the Bible. And then thirdly, I hope we can agree, is that then we need to know and then we need to act on the truth. Right? So we say that there is right and there is wrong. We identify what that is and then we know it and we act on it. Tim Keller uh, put this on his Facebook status the other day. He said, we must be so immersed in God's written word and truth that we are trained to choose rightly even in cases to which the Bible doesn't speak directly. You see what Keller's leaning into? It's exactly what Gladwell suggests as far as our brains and our conscious and our unconscious. He's saying when you immerse yourself in the truth, your response to things, whether or not the Bible directly addresses it or not, you'll know what to do because you've been immersed in God's word and truth. And so we as a people, we don't have time to get together on a weekly basis like this and not talk about the Bible. We need to be in it. And we need to be studying it. So we want to know and act on the truth. Now, back to 1 Timothy 1. 
Lots going on, right? Lots going on there. I mean, it's a powerful text. But what we see right up front is Paul addressing with Timothy that I've heard there's people in your midst that are buying into false teaching or silly myths. Do we have people within our churches and in our culture that can buy into silly myths, not sound doctrine? Of course we do. And so this is, as it is applicable in that culture and what's going on, so it is applicable in the culture in which we now find ourselves. So the question then is, well, what is Paul wanting the original church here to know? What are the truths that he's saying, guys, hold this line. You don't move past this one. What is the line? And the line is really the gospel. So the first thing we need to realize is what is the truth Paul is calling Timothy to hold to? Well, number one, we see in verses 5 to 11, where Paul says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Suppose not writing them and saying, hey guys, I want, I want to lie to you about something. No, this is from love that is just from a pure heart before God and a good conscience and in sincere faith. These aren't from bad places. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. So certain person, what are they swerving away from? From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Desiring to be teachers of the law, so they're claiming some sort of authority without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. My cat's 100 pounds. Now we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. So use it in the way that it was originally intended. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Now what's interesting as Paul is doing this is he's really proving to us that all of us are unjust. Because when the law was given, there's not like there was anybody that said, I did that perfectly. I'm perfectly just. So what is Paul telling us first and foremost? What is the truth we're called to hold to? And it's an identity of who you and I are. Is that we are helpless and lost. Now that's not very popular. How did your unconscious respond to that one? Because you read on Facebook and some of these quotes that say, you can do whatever you want to do. If you put your mind to it. Could I be a linebacker? Likely not. I mean, I, I, could, I could really put my mind to it, but I'm sorry. I'm, I'm helpless with that. I'm not Von Miller. Go Von Miller, right? Did you watch the Super Bowl? Hello, MVP, Denver Broncos. Shoot, okay, that's all right. Um, I can't be Von Miller, and I'm watching the Late Late Show with James Corden, and he's dancing with Von Miller on stage. You probably didn't see this, but uh, initially when they're sitting down, like James Corden is probably about my height, a heavier set guy, and then as you're sitting, you're like, okay, they look like relatively the same size. And then they stand up and they start like dancing. And you're like, holy smokes, that guy's huge. Now what we realize, this is a silly example, but you and I, we're helpless and lost. I can't just put my mind to something and, and do it. I'm helpless. And when it comes to where I'm going to spend my eternity, I can't control how tall I'm going to be, nor how fast my hair is going to grow, nor know how many hairs are in my beard. How in the world am I supposed to be the one that determines my eternity forever. I'm 
helpless and lost. Now, you might be someone that approaches the world from, a, from an atheistic or secularist or humanist perspective. Guaranteed, there is a moral line that you have crossed on your own. So you said, I will never do this. Did you ever fail to meet that? Of course. Why? The Christian perspective is, is we are all helpless and lost. We're sinners. We do things every day that we're not proud of. We desire to do things that, well, we want to do, but we can't do them. And Paul writes about this in another one of his letters where he says, the things that I want to do, I can't do. So Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, there's people around you that are trying to tell you that you aren't as helpless and lost as, you know, you're all right. You know, you do enough things, you'll be fine. Hold the line, Timothy. You are helpless and lost. So then what does he tell us? What's the second truth? Well, then the second truth is, is what Jesus did. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul's just not like, hey, you guys out there, you're all sinners. He's like, no, Jesus came to die for me. Because I'm helpless and lost. And Timothy, if you're going to hold the line, you've got to hold the line that people can't save themselves. They need Jesus to save them. That Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins. They couldn't have done that for themselves. Hold the line that you are helpless and lost and that Jesus died to save you, to be a substitute for us. Well, then what's the next statement? Verse 13b to 14, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The next truth that we're being told is what did the father do? Well, God accepted the work of Christ on your behalf by raising him from the dead and giving us the grace and peace that Christ won and achieved for us. That God, over the work of Christ on the cross, said, I accept it. I accept what he has done for you, not what you could do for yourself, but what he has done for you. Well, then we got to ask the question, well, why did the Father do that? Like, what was, what was that all about? Verse 16 to 17. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So why did God do it? Well, it's all done out of grace, not because of anything you and I have done. This is the gospel. And it's not just this lovely belief that then doesn't affect everything else. It's this lovely good news truth that then affects everything else. So how do I approach you? I approach you in love and grace because, well, I've been shown the love and grace of Jesus. How do I respond to you in community? I respond to you as I have been saved by Jesus. Well, they're unforgivable. Let me tell you, you are probably unforgivable. The God of the universe who knows every single little thing that you have ever thought. He knows. And he chose to forgive you. Why? Because of his grace. Because he can. Because he's God. And because he loves you. Now, there are false gospels. And I need to mention these because if we don't mention them, how are we to know 
what is right and what is wrong. So what are the false gospels going on in our culture? Number one, and this is going to sound all well and good, but I need to point out the, the problem with it, is that you are saved through your surrender to Christ plus right beliefs and behavior. You know what the problem with the Pharisees was? This. Oh yes, we surrender to God and we do all of the right things, so we must be saved. So it, it sounds good, like surrender plus right beliefs and behavior, that the more the good things I do, the more right beliefs and stuff that I do, that God will look on me and be like, I'm more proud of you now. You're, you're better. Thanks for impressing me. No. We don't impress God. Because if we're to say, well, look at all my, my good things, God, he'd also have to go, <laughs> but let's look at all the bad. What's that all about? And this teaching is out there. It, it goes along the lines of, if you do this right now, then this is your result. And people claim, okay, if I believe in Jesus, then it's all good. Guys, the scriptures tell us that even the demons believe in Jesus. So simply about believing in Jesus, I don't know where any of the rest of us land. Second false teaching. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a loving and good person. And this view teaches that all people, regardless of their beliefs or religion, will find God. And what it essentially teaches is that good works are enough to get to you to God. But as we did when we saw that all true, when someone claims that, you know, there's no such thing as absolute truth, this is self-defeating in its approach because you still need a definition of what is good and you're back at being exclusive of the bad people. Does this make sense? So if you're like, well, you can believe whatever you want as long as you're a good and loving person. Well, where did you get that definition of good and loving? It also, at the same time, encourages people to think that they are, if they are tolerant and open, that they are pleasing to God. And as a result, people don't need grace. They can get it for the, themselves. The gospel challenges our radical sin, and without the sense of your own evil, the knowledge of God's grace will not be transforming, and we will not understand how much God is glorified by the presence of anyone at all in heaven. When we simply just go, well, it doesn't really matter what, what you believe, you know, everybody's going to end up. Then you don't need Jesus! If you don't need Jesus, see you later to Christianity. It's no longer Christianity. It's your anity. It's what you could do for yourself, and that's not the gospel. That's a popular belief in our culture, that you can believe what you believe, and I'll believe what I believe, but I don't want to offend you. The gospel is offensive. If at some point along this, you're going, good. Good. Because we have offended God, but praise be to him, because he accepted Jesus Christ on our behalf. And what is Paul telling us? This is where the line is drawn. There's a third form of false teaching, and it's those that are extremely intolerant of small differences of dress or custom. This one's a little bit more. You can see this one more often. Well, you have tattoos. I'm sorry, you're not really that saved. You have, you have plugs? Holes in your ears? Oh my, you're a gypsy. No, I'm saved by the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did on my behalf, not on what I have in my ears nor what are on my arms. And I can comfortably wear jeans this morning. How about you? What are you walking in with? Praise be to God that the gospel is not that you need to arrive at this certain place of perfection in order to be saved. 
that Christ is enough. Tim Keller in his commentary, Galatians for You, says why this is so important. The gospel is something we must be uncompromising about. That's because first, a different gospel means you are deserting the one who called you. To abandon gospel theology is to abandon Christ personally. What you do in theology eventually affects your experience. In other words, a difference in your understanding of doctrine leads to a difference in your understanding of who Jesus is and means it's questionable whether you really know him at all. Next slide. Second, a different gospel is not gospel at all. This means that the gospel message by its very nature cannot be changed even slightly without it being lost. Third, a different gospel brings condemnation. This means ultimately that to alter the gospel is to play with eternal fire and death. But it also means very practically that fear, anxiety, and guilt will always be attached to different gospels, even in this life. It's enormous. And what does Paul write and say? Hold the line. You want to know what it is? The gospel. That you're helpless and lost. That Jesus came and died on the cross for your sins to be a substitute. That God the Father said that is an acceptable sacrifice. And why? Because of grace. And you remove any part of that, then it's not really grace. When you don't realize how helpless and lost you are, the sacrifice of Jesus really isn't all that big of a deal. And then we realize the true weight of this charge in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 20, where he finishes with, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Do we see the language that now Paul is choosing? Warfare! Saying this is something you've got to fight for. Because if you don't, it'll be lost. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's a nice way to end chapter one. (laughs) What is Paul warning Timothy? Timothy, it's happened. There are people that by buying into false belief systems and false genealogies and believing silly myths have shipwrecked their faith. And and I can't do anything about it anymore. I've actually had to hand them over to Satan. So I think the challenge to us as Church of the City is are we going to buy into endless genealogies and silly myths? No! No! Where are we going to hold the line? The gospel. Because it changes everything else. Now, some people are big fans of Jesus. What's interesting about Jesus is Jesus loved the Old Testament. Do you realize that's why the Bible has authority? As Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore, what Jesus says matters, matters. And Jesus cared a lot about the Old Testament. You can't deny that. It's like, well, I just like reading some of the teachings of Jesus. I'm sorry, but if you read the teachings of Jesus, it's laced in the Old Testament. And so we need to understand it for its context and for its history so that we can apply it and know it in our daily lives. Now, this morning, we are going to celebrate communion.
Why? I'm glad you asked. Because we are celebrating what we just declared and what we know to be the truth in here. That you and I are helpless and lost and that Jesus came and died to take away our sins to be a substitute for us and God the Father accepted that on our behalf because of his grace. Now what's interesting in the scriptures, it also says that, well, this grace thing, that's all well and lovely. Does that mean I can go continue sinning? And what it says over and over again is by no means. Why? Because then you haven't accepted the gospel. You haven't trusted in it. You're still trusting in the level of your faith rather than the object of your faith. I heard someone say once, it was David Platt, and he said, you know, if I were to walk in here after getting hit by a Mack truck and I was late for teaching, and I were to come up and say, guys, I just got hit by a Mack truck, you're not going to believe it. And we'd all sit there going, well, you're here, so yeah, we don't believe it. Uh, You must be lying to us. And what he says is is that when we just kind of go out there and we're like, yeah, Jesus, like, yeah, he's a pretty cool teacher. When we continue walking out in our sin, you haven't been hit by the Mack truck that is the good news of the gospel. The good good news can do nothing but bring you to your knees to go, he knew about that, yet he saved me? He knew about the thing that I'm going to do tomorrow, later today, a month from now, 20 years from now, and he chose to save me? What kind of love is this? That just, you know, you, you declare I love you, but then you go on and you do things that are hurtful. This is the gospel. That I am more broken and messed up than I ever understood, but I am more loved and accepted than I could ever dream. And so if you are here today, you've never trusted in the good news. You've trusted in a false gospel. You've trusted that, well, it's just simply by my surrender and I'm trying to be good. Your behavior comes when you recognize the love that Christ has for you. So why would I turn on the one that did that for me? That you've never trusted or even heard that before. Today's your day. There's going to be people up front here that want to pray with you following our service. And we want to be a church that has a culture of prayer, that it's not just like, oh, I kind of feel like going up there, but I might not because people might know that I need prayed for. We're all helpless and lost. We all need prayed for. And so you might come up and you might go, hey, you know, I got this little thing in my life. Good. Jesus thought that it was a big thing, and so he died on the cross for it. It's not some little thing. It's huge. We want to see people healed. We want to see people changed from the inside out. So you might be asking, what's this church of the city thing all about? That. That this is who we are going to be uncompromisingly going to be about. It's Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And so as you sit, as you ponder, as you reflect, as we begin singing these songs, you can just stand up wherever you are and you can go to the back where our communion is set up. If you're gluten-free, praise the Lord, there's gluten-free options here. But remember that as you go somber, you don't actually have to go somber because of what has been accomplished for you. This is the reason we celebrate. Look what he's done for me. So you walk confident with a little swagger, not because of you, but because of him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're up to. God, I confess to you today 
that I believed that I was enough that our teams were enough, that if we had just had the right size canopy, if we just had the right drapes in the right spot or the right height stage, or if the lights were just tweaked ever so perfectly, then this would be a great thing. Forgive me, God, for I have sinned. In Christ, you are enough. And so I thank you that you took my sin seriously enough that you went to the cross for me so that I can stand victorious declared not guilty by the Father. God, I pray that we would take this book seriously, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. May we recognize that the issues of this culture are the same issues of our culture. And God, may we be people that stand for the truth, that just don't listen to someone talk about their 100-pound cat or about this thing that they've chosen to believe and just go, well, yeah, that's all well and good and acceptable because God, it's not. Jesus, you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You didn't say, I am a way, or I am a truth, or I am a type of life. You said, I am the only way. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. We celebrate that today.